song that we just sang in Christ alone will fit directly with the message this morning from Philippians. And it speaks of the glory of the new covenant. For a reading this morning, I'd like to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And all readings this morning will be from the English Standard Version. Ephesians 2, starting at 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise having no hope and without God in the world but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Would you pray with me this morning? Our Heavenly Father, Blessed are you, O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you who have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Blessed are you, our God and Father, who have destined us in love to be your sons and daughters in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. You have freely bestowed your grace upon us in your beloved Son. You have made us known you have made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of your will, your plan to unite all things in Christ. You have sealed us with your promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. Blessed are you, O God. Have mercy upon us, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, O God, blot out our transgressions. We know our sins only too well. It is painful to us and offensive to you. We seek to be holy, but we are prone to becoming entangled in sin. 
Have mercy upon us, O God. Have mercy. For your love is steadfast and your covenant, your new covenant in the blood of Christ is an eternal covenant. May we glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ today. May we know that Christ is seated at your right hand, our Savior, our Mediator, our Advocate, our Intercessor, and the Friend of Sinners. O God of heaven and earth, we pray today for the members of this congregation that you would strengthen and uphold each of us in our daily lives. May we ever be committed to the truth of your word, to living lives of holiness, to spreading hope and the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grant us the courage and the will to do so. We pray that you would strengthen and uphold the marriages and families within this church. May our lives at home reflect your grace and your love as we seek to love others as you have loved us. We pray for the sick among us today. We specifically bring before you your beloved servant Harry Peters and his family. We pray for resolution of his medical condition, for tests to be done. We pray for peace and comfort that only you can provide. We pray for our government and those in authority over us. We pray that truth and righteousness would prevail in their governance. We pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Blessed are you, eternal God, the source of all wisdom and knowledge. Grant us today a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the hope to which we have been called. Reveal yourself to us through an understanding of your word. For we can only know you if you give yourself to be known. We pray that you would free our hearts and our minds of all distraction as we study, as we study your word. May we hear your voice today. May we submit to it in our hearts and in our minds. And may you be glorified today in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. One simple word separates the true Christian faith from all other religions and belief systems in the world. It's a three-letter word that we use dozens, perhaps hundreds of times every day. The Bible contains warnings about it and describes the consequences of it for those who incorporate it in their belief system. It is a conjunction, a part of speech that links two things together. The word, of course, is the simple word, and. Salvation, as described in God's word, is by faith alone. And all other faiths and religions of the world can be described as faith and something else. That something is usually a human work of some sort, a contribution to our own salvation. It is indeed the human inclination to attempt to secure our own salvation, but this is not the plan or the will of God. Today we'll be continuing 
my lifelong study in the book of Philippians, where we are just beginning chapter 3. Our passage today will be chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, if you'd like to turn, where Paul is continuing his discourse on the joyful Christian life, the example of Christ and other men, and some practical instruction on living a life that is worthy of the gospel. I have entitled this message, Put No Confidence in the Flesh, because this is the essence of Paul's friendly warning and example here as he seeks to address those who would like to add to the long-awaited gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul deals with the faith and issue here as he seeks to recenter their thinking on the essence and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us read that passage together. Philippians 3, verses 1 to 6. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, the unfolding of your words give light, and it imparts understanding to the simple. Blessed Lord, great God, Lord of all, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit spoke through the wise men of Israel, pour out on us that same Holy Spirit as we read the pages that they wrote. Unfold to us your word, grant us light, impart to us understanding, simple as we are. O Lord on high, grant us the wisdom that is from on high, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As we look at this passage, I think it might be worthwhile to zoom out a bit and refresh our memories with some basic information about our passage in its historical and literary context. Philippians is a friendly letter written about 62 AD from the Apostle Paul, who's in a Roman prison to the believing church in Philippi that he had established many years earlier. Philippi is a Roman colony in Asia Minor, a military outpost, and is therefore made up primarily of Gentile people. Military themes are important in this book, as is talk of citizenship and how one should live. The church is a fairly young church. These are generally Gentile converts, so they may not have the depth and the history of knowledge and experience of Judaism as with the other churches in Judea and the Jewish regions. 
but they are indeed true converts. And one of the distinctives of this letter is that Paul is very friendly in this letter, encouraging them and showing his love for them. They have sacrificed and supported him financially while a missionary and now while in prison. They are an encouragement and a blessing to him as he is locked in prison many miles away. So he pens them a letter, a father to a child, with tenderness of heart, only wanting the best for them. They're doing well in their faith, and he wants to encourage them on. It may be worth reading some verses from chapter 1 to refresh our thinking on the love that exists between Paul and this church. For this is a great example of true biblical love. From chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, for I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is so thankful for them, and he seeks the absolute best for them, that they may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. He yearns for them all with the affections of Christ. Paul places Christ above all, and he seeks to advance the gospel for the glory of Christ above all, including his very life. He would not be ashamed if he dies in prison, for his imprisonment is actually serving to advance the gospel in the imperial guard that surrounds him. He is not wasting his time in prison. He is actively speaking of that which he believes. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Either way is good, because the gospel is so important and so valuable, because he values the sacrifice of Christ so much, he urges the church to live in such a manner that is worthy of that gospel. Let nothing diminish that value. Stand firm in unity. Do not be frightened in the face of opposition or persecution. The church has faced and is facing and could potentially face some opposition and persecution that Paul seeks to address. He speaks of a conflict in chapter 1, verse 30, and again in 3, verse 318 people who he refers to as enemies of the cross. Our passage today warns the church against another group that could threaten the church. Through it all, he points to people as examples of Christian living that they have before them and reminds them to live joyful lives of Christian service. First of all, he points to the supreme example of Christ and his humble service. Then to examples of himself, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Honor such men, he instructs. Our passage today will contain a reference to the example of Paul, who puts no confidence in his earthly accomplishments. 
as we delve into our passage today, keep in mind some of the critical ideas that have been discussed in the letter so far. Chapter 127 contains a phrase which should remain central in our thinking as we read and interpret this letter. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This instruction revolves around the importance of holy living and the supremacy of Christ. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 121. This reinforces the supreme value of a life in Christ, a life of joyful service that magnifies the name of Christ, or a death which brings a faithful servant joyful into the presence of the eternal God to enjoy him forever. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. The clear instruction is to apply all of our effort, heart and mind and soul and body, to the fight against sin and towards living a sanctified and holy life. As we keep in mind the supreme sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf, Christ, who also gives us the ability and the desire to live in this way. All of this should bring us joy as we bring God pleasure with the sacrifices of righteous living. Keeping in mind all of this prior instruction, we're ready to delve into our text, the first few verses of chapter 3. In reality, the first 11 verses of 3 could be studied as one unit, but for the sake of time, I've divided them into two sections, and Lord willing, we will study the second half at a later date. I'd like to provide a bit of a road map before we get into the text. I would suggest that there's three points of discussion in this text. Rejoice, beware, and know. Rejoice in the Lord. Beware of false teachers. Know who you are in Christ. Key to understanding this passage is an understanding of the Abrahamic covenant and the sign of the covenant. So we'll be, dis we'll be spending a lot of time there. We will seek to tie this all together with the promise and the fulfillment of the new covenant in Christ. We have a lot of ground to cover. There'll be a lot of scripture to look at. So let's begin. Paul begins... 3, verse 1, with the word, finally. Or the word that is translated, finally. And this has caused quite a bit of discussion in the commentaries over the years, as it is obvious that this is not the conclusion of the book. It's right in the middle. It would be as if I said right now, and in conclusion, and you'd all get excited for lunch, but, and then go on to preach for another 30 minutes. The word, has been translated into English as finally, but it's better understood as and so, or further, indicating a break in thought with the introduction of a new idea. Paul is not concluding his letter, obviously. He is summing it up and moving on to new instruction. This is a loving and formal, personal letter, rather than a formal essay or a sermon as is indicated by his affectionate use of my brothers. He then reiterates 
clearly is past instruction. Rejoice in the Lord. Their attitude is to be one of joy when they realize the life that they have in Christ. When they live in the presence of Christ in their lives and in each other's lives, they should be joyful with all that Christ has done for them and in them. For indeed it has been and it is God who works in them, as we have read from chapter 2. The key part of this instruction is the modifier, in the Lord. One helpful commentary that I have has these comments specifically regarding the phrase, rejoice in the Lord. And I quote, This is not an ad admonition to some kind of superficial cheerfulness that closes its eyes to the surrounding circumstances. Rather, the apostle is indicating a positive Christian attitude of joy that finds outward expression in their lives and that realistically takes into account the adverse circumstances, trials, and pressures through which the Philippians were called to pass. It also recognizes God's mighty working in and through those circumstances to fulfill his own gracious purposes in Christ. The joy that Paul is speaking of is that which wells up from the depths of the soul, from a deep and abiding personal relationship with Christ. True and lasting joy is not possible outside of Christ. Paul goes on to comment on this instruction. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. The word trouble is better understood in the original context and language as hesitation. Paul is saying that to instruct them in this manner is no cause of hesitation for him. It is a natural thing for him to do because of his love for them. He desires that they know and understand the things that he has to say to them. He adds that it is safe for them. This means it is a safeguard for them. It's to safeguard them. It's to keep them safe. These same things are referring to the immediate context to the instruction to rejoice in the Lord. And it ties back to the instruction in chapter 2, verse 29, to receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy. And in 2.18, to be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's desire, in, in keeping with chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul's desire is that he wants to safeguard them from error and hostile attacks. This is a loving and personal letter, and he seeks the best for them. And he has no hesitation in writing these words, as he knows it will be for their benefit. Paul then abruptly moves to one of the things that he wants to protect them from. In verse 2, he uses some of the strongest language in the New Testament to make his point. He transitions from this friendly and affectionate tone to a serious warning. Verse 2 is stark and memorable. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is strong language, reinforced by a triple warning. Look out, 
look out, look out. We, we really need to ask some questions here to understand why has he spoken out so strongly? Who are the dogs? Who are the evildoers? Who are those who mutilate the flesh? The church is being warned against a very specific group of people. We don't have to go far to identify who this is. We just need to look at verse 3, which starts, For we are the real circumcision. This is a contrast statement. So by inference, Paul is also saying that this group that he's referring to is not the real circumcision. And they practice something that he refers to as mutilation of the flesh. This helps us to understand that the group that Paul is telling the church to watch out for is a group called the Judaizers. These are Jews who are attempting to teach and force historical Jewish customs on the Christians as a necessary component of their salvation. And we'll expand on that in a minute. Let's go back to the language of the warning. Look out. Paul says three times in rapid succession. The phrase means beware, be alert, know your enemy, be ready with a response. We may see a sign at the edge of someone's property, beware of dog. This is a warning against a known danger. Take appropriate steps to protect yourself. Know the danger. Paul says, look out for the dogs, or beware of the dogs. The term dogs has a rich biblical history. And Paul is using it here in an ironic and somewhat insulting manner. Biblical Jewish history would have this derogatory term commonly used for outsiders to the Jewish nation. And here Paul turns it back around and addresses it to the Jews themselves. Psalm 16 is an example of this usage. For the dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. And Psalm 59 is an example where David calls his enemies dogs. Each, an each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling around the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. I will quote from a commentary that I found helpful. Dogs were not lovable, huggable pets and companions in Paul's Jewish culture. They were regarded as the most despicable, insolent, and miserable of creatures. Dogs were despised because they could eat, they would eat anything, including dead animals, human corpses, and their own vomit. Enemies of Israel were insulted by being compared to and called dogs. By emphasizing the boundary line between the Jewish people and the Gentiles, and demanding that Gentile Christians must identify with the Jewish people, Judaizers were excluding Gentile believers from the people of God and were actually either or by implication calling them dogs. Even though the Gentile believers were followers of Jesus, 
They were regarded as unclean as dogs, since they did not conform to the purity laws of the Jews. Until these Gentile converts came out, came within the circle of Judaism, they were considered by the Judaizers to be outside that circle of the holy people of God, and they were regarded as unclean dogs. Paul, though, draws another circle with Christ as the center. The Gentile believers are holy people in Christ, and they are becoming blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. True purity is in Christ. Those who belong to Christ are the holy people of God. Since the Judaizers recognize only the purity that comes from belonging to the Jewish people, they despise the purity that comes from belonging to Christ. By despising true purity in Christ, they put themselves in the place of dogs. Following this line of thought, Paul calls the Judaizers by their own favorite title for impure Gentiles. Watch out for those dogs. Paul also calls this group of people the evildoers. Look out for the evildoers. This again is a biblical term that is used in the Psalms to denote the godless and wicked people who have rejected God and are enemies of the true people of God. The term is rich in meaning as it is directed to those who believe that, though, that they are doing works of righteousness, those who feel that they are contributing to their faith by their good works. Listen to Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. Paul is calling this group the evildoers. This group of Jews who is attempting to force Jewish customs on the new Gentile believers. They think that they are doing righteous acts in the sight of God, but God says that they are evil and fools because they are attempting to add to the gospel, to the work of Christ. Paul's third epithet is, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The accusations and names are increasing in intensity and specificity. Dogs is a general term. Evildoers refer to actions, and mutilation of the flesh refers to one specific procedure which represents a greater reality. That one procedure is circumcision, as is clarified in verse 3. To understand why Paul speaks so harshly against this, we need to back up and take a zoomed-out view of circumcision in the Bible. At this point, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you will definitely be wondering why this is mentioned there. It seems like a bizarre statement. Isn't circumcision just a surgical procedure that involves the removal of a portion of the skin of the male genitalia? An integumentary excision, so to speak, one might say. 
Why is it even in the Bible? What's the meaning of it? There's a lot of talk about it. We need to understand that. This warrants an excursion into the Old Testament and a discussion of the Abrahamic covenant. So we've been spending a lot of time in the book of Genesis with Pastor Josh in the last few months. And he ended in chapter 11. Now we need to go to chapter 12 and get familiar with the man called Abraham. Actually, Abram at this point in the narrative. We've seen the first Adam, the fall and the judgment of the flood. We have learned about Noah, Noah the second Adam, the second creation, the spread of man's wickedness again, and the judgment at the Tower of Babel. Now we move to Abram, the third Adam, so to speak, and the beginning of a specific story of the final redemption of a people that God has chosen for himself. The story will ultimately weave in the people of Israel, the Mosaic Covenant instituted at the Mount Sinai, and the Davidic Covenant, which more specifically speaks to Christ on the eternal throne. So we really need to understand what happened with Abraham and God and how circumcision fits into the story and why Paul so vehemently rejected this in the New Testament letters, specifically of Philippians, Galatians, and Romans. The story of circumcision in the Bible starts with a set of promises to Abram and the call of God to Abram. We don't know much about Abram when he's introduced in chapter 12, except that he was the 10th generation from Noah. In the blessed line of Shem, as Pastor Josh has expounded from Genesis 9, verse 26, God simply chose Abram. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, tells us this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and uh, him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the core of the promise to Abram. And a few years later, God makes a more formal covenant with Abram to confirm these promises. This is recorded in Genesis 15, at a point where Abram still had no children. Verse 1, chapter 15 after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Verse 5, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And verse 18 
on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. God, in keeping with the covenant-making ceremonies of the day, ratifies this covenant with animal sacrifices, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. It is an awesome account that you should take the time to read and study in chapter 15. In short, in this type of treaty, usually in that culture and in that time, both parties ratify the covenant, and both parties would walk through the sacrificed animals. But in this case, different from human-made covenants of the day, God alone, represented by the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, ratifies the covenant and goes through the middle and is therefore responsible for upholding the agreement. He takes the responsibilities for the blessings and the curses of the covenant, which is what the animals split in two pieces represent. We could really spend a lot of time here. It's a very rich study. But we need to move. We need to move to chapter 17 for the final installation of the Abraham covenant as it begins to move forward. This is the point where it's actually put into motion. It's the point where God changes Abram's name to Abraham from exalted father to father of a multitude. For this is a key component of the covenant. So, chapter 17, verses 1 to 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, for your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to be your offspring after, and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God is promising that Abraham will be the father of many nations, that he will be their God, and that they will have a land for their possession. Abraham is to fulfill his side of the covenant by walking before God and living a blameless life. Now we can get to the point of all this. Circumcision as a sign of the covenant. Let's keep reading in chapter 17, verses 9 to 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you, shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner 
who is not of your offspring, both he who is born of your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. An uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this text provides us with the historical context and the meaning of circumcision in the Bible. The practice was not unfamiliar to Abraham in his days. He would have known that it's a, it was a practice of the Egyptians and other nearby people groups. In Egyptian culture, though, it was a right practiced by the priesthood, by the elites, to be consecrated for the service of their gods. In contrast, the, the practice of circumcision in the Abrahamic line was to be a sign of the covenant of God with Abraham, the promise of blessing, the great name, and a land to reside in. It was pre performed on the eighth day of life to all members, signifying a new creation. After the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest, we have Circumcision on the eighth day, signifying a new creation. The line of Abraham, the new Adam, was a new creation. The nation of Israel was to observe this practice as representative of the whole covenant, that they would walk before God and be blameless. It was to be a sign to them of God's promise and a sign to themselves of, the pledge, of their pledge of faithfulness to God. It is a sign, a part that represents the whole. So then, why was it deemed by Paul so harshly as mutilation of the flesh? How did we get there? Paul was obviously denouncing this practice in verse 2 as we move back to Philippians. Why the change? How do we understand the radical and diametrically opposite treatment of circumcision in the New Testament. It was commanded by God in the, New Te in the Old Testament, and it was prohibited by God through the words of Paul in the New Testament as a religious practice. What happened? The key component to understanding this transition is to understand that the Abrahamic covenant found its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, from Genesis 12. The genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, from Abraham to Jesus, is proof of this. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was no longer necessary as the Abrahamic covenant of promise was fulfilled by the new covenant in Christ. The sign of the covenant was and is simply, therefore, no longer necessary. Furthermore, to practice this sign as a means of, as a means of fulfilling presumed covenantal responsibilities indicates that one does not accept or understand the work of Christ in fulfilling this covenant. So as you can imagine, there was much discussion in the first century about this, this transition. This issue was decided by the apostles, was discussed and decided by the apostles in the early church at the Jerusalem Council 
as recorded in Acts 15, which dealt with the question, must a Gentile become a Jew? That was a big issue. The chapter is a fascinating study, and I would encourage you to spend some time there. The council agreed that in fulfillment of the prophecy in Amos 9 and other prophetic words, that this was indeed the long-awaited time that God was calling Jew and Gentile together into one body and that circumcision was no longer necessary as the promise had been fulfilled. Christ was indeed the blessing that would extend to all the nations of the earth. But still, maybe 14 or 15 years later, there were men traveling around who were not convinced of this. Paul dealt with the issue in the Galatian church, and the whole letter addresses this. Oh, foolish Galatians, he says, who has bewitched you? There were some who were convinced that they had to return to Old Testament practices to earn their salvation. Paul is adamant and clearly states that salvation is by faith and not by works of the law. Take time to read the entire book as one. Sit down and read the entire book. Here are some highlights. Galatians 3, 7-9 is a critical passage. knowing then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is a phenomenal passage. The blessing is actually referred to as the gospel. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. This verse removes all genealogical and family and ethnic lines. The promise is fulfilled in a spiritual people, not a physical or an ethnic people. There is only one people of God, and it is those of faith. Galatians 3, 23-28 is another crucial passage to understand in this context. Now before faith came, we are held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There's so much to talk about here. Time limits us, though. We are sons of God through faith, not through a family line. For the sake of completion, in our discussion of the Abrahamic covenant, we're, while we're close to it, we need to talk about the land promise. Abraham was promised a land for himself and his lineage. Moses in the covenant at Sinai, referred to as the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant, was also promised a land. They did receive the land of Canaan. Judges 23:14 tells us all the promises had come to pass. But the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, tells us that the land they, Abraham and his lineage, those of faith, will receive 
is not this small piece of real estate in the Middle East, but is a heavenly country. Verse 13 actually tells us they did not receive what they had promised, but greeted them from afar. An understanding and a study of Hebrews is critical to understanding the land promise. The land promise is ultimately fulfilled, as are all the promises of God through Christ in the heavenly realm. In eschatological terms, it is fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Hebrews tells us that the old covenant is made obsolete and fading away. All the prophecies about Israel and the people of God must be interpreted in light of the new covenant. Thus the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are all fulfilled in and through Christ. The great name promised to Abraham is the great name of Christ. The blessing to all nations is the advance of the gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation through Christ. And the land promise is fulfilled in the promise and the certainty of the new heavens and the new earth. If all the promises are fulfilled in Christ, there is no longer any need for a sign of that covenant. The sign of circumcision is no longer necessary, and the practice of it in this regard is actually a spurning of the person and work of Christ. It is a return to former things which have passed away and a failure to recognize the glory of the new covenant in Christ. This is the reason Paul comes out so strongly against the Judaizers, against those who are teaching that this must still be upheld to be righteous in God's eyes. It is blasphemy. It is evil. It is false. Beware. Look out. Be on your guard. These false teachers are coming around and you need to know how to respond to them, Paul tells this faithful church. For we are the real circumcision, Paul continues in verse 3. We, those who put their faith in Christ alone, are the real circumcision, the real people of God. A true Jew, a true person of God, is defined by the heart, as Paul describes in Romans 2.29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from, from man, but from God. Paul here is referring to teaching from Deuteronomy that reveals the initial and true intent by God of circumcision. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it, Yet the Lord set his, set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. It continues in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. 
in this passage from the Old Testament. We find a hint of the glory of the New Covenant, where it is God's work alone to effect a change in the heart of people. The physical act was always meant to represent a spiritual act. It was always meant to point ahead to the work of God as always effective, rather than the work of man, which always fails. For completion at this point, we need to connect the dots between the Abrahamic and the New Covenant. The sign of the Abrahamic Covenant was to be circumcision, a physical act performed by man to show inclusion in that ethnic community. The Abrahamic Covenant is fulfilled in Christ as revealed in the New Covenant, which is a spiritual reality. The sign of the New Covenant, the sign that displays inclusion in the New Covenant, cannot, can therefore not be a physical sign that man can perform. It must be a sign that God performs. And I'm going to argue that, for, that the sign of the New Covenant is regeneration. A new heart granted to us by God himself. A sign that shows inclusion in the new covenant. A heart that loves God and seeks to obey all his commands. A heart indwelt by the Holy Spirit which provides us the ability and the desire to obey. To will and to work for his good pleasure as we seek to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To go back and practice circumcision as a religious rite, to put confidence in this act as a necessary part of inclusion in the people of God, is to reject the new covenant and to reject Christ himself. And this is why Paul came out so harshly against it. We could spend so much time here but we need to move on. Chapter 3, verse 3, then lists three characteristics of the real circumcision, the real people of God, traits of true believers. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. True believers worship by the Spirit of God. It is not an act or something that we force ourselves to do. The Spirit of God permanently indwells all members of the New Covenant, draws two believers close to God himself, and allows them to glory in Christ Jesus. True believers put no confidence in the flesh. We count nothing that we do as worth anything towards our salvation. All of our deeds we know are as filthy rags in the sight of God. We can do nothing of our own will that will please God. Paul then goes on in the next few verses to use his life as an example, as he's done before, stating that if it were possible to have confidence in the flesh or in works, he should have it. He has all the qualifications. He has done everything right. Yet he has learned through a supernatural act of God in his heart that this was all worth nothing. Rubbish, in fact. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, 
as through righteousness under the law, blameless. We will study verses 7 to 11 at a later date, but they are supporting verses for his statement that true believers should put no confidence in the flesh. We need to bring this home. We have covered a lot of important ground today. Here's what's essential. True faith puts no confidence in the flesh. True faith esteems the work of Christ above all. True faith will yield the fruit of joy in your life as you rejoice in the work of Christ. We've covered the breadth of Scripture today, from the promise to Abraham in Genesis to the promise of the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21. We need to keep central in our minds the truth of 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why we, it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises of God find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Christ is central in scripture and seeks to be central in our lives. Let us rejoice in the work of Christ on our behalf that those of faith are secured in the new covenant. And through the indwelling Holy Spirit are given the ability and the desire to obey. To obey God and to keep his commandments. To walk before God and be blameless. As God himself called Abraham, God himself still calls people to himself. I have a few concluding questions. Have you found the joy of which Paul speaks? This joy that wells up from the depths of your soul in good times and in difficult times can only come from God himself. God has made a way to know him and to have this joy through confession of sin, through repentance, a turning away from trusting in your own deeds and your own works, and through fully trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Do you long for this joy? Would you come to Jesus today? Are you still trusting in your own good works? Perhaps you think that you can gain merit with God by being a good person. The Bible, God's own word to us, clearly states that your best deeds are worthless in God's sight. If you keep all the law but break only one component of it, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. The standard is perfect obedience, and only Christ has perfectly obeyed on our behalf. Stop trusting in yourself and throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. For he is merciful, and all who come to him will be saved. But, as Romans 8.13 tells us, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you trust in your own works, if you put any confidence in your own flesh, you will die. You will be eternally separated from God. You will never experience joy. Come to Many of you are brothers and sisters in Christ, most here. What can we glean from this message? 
first of all. Let us leave with a profound new gratitude for the work of Christ on our behalf. Let us glory in the gospel of Jesus. For he has called us into his kingdom. He called us like he called Abraham. He just transferred us from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. Here are three practical ways we can glory in Christ Jesus. We can glory in Christ Jesus by reading and studying the Bible. If this is truly the means of communication of the eternal God of the universe to us, and the message is that he loves us and he wants us to be with him forever, why wouldn't you want to read and study it? If this is a chore for you, if you have no interest in reading the Bible, the glory of the gospel has not yet gripped your heart. This is God communicating himself to us. Read and study the Bible. We can glory in Christ Jesus by prayer. God himself has invited us to speak to him through Jesus Christ. Consider the magnitude of this. When we pray, we honor and glorify Christ and his work on our behalf. For it is through Christ that we can pray, that we can approach that throne of grace. We can glory in Christ Jesus by being actively involved in the fellowship of the saints, the local church. It is because the work of the work of Christ that the church exists. It is a God-made creation. It is not a man-made thing. We honor Christ when we accept the invocation, invitation of God to come and worship, as we are doing here today. We glory in Christ by coming and worshiping and fellowshipping together. Let us anticipate with great joy and expectation the treasure that lies before us, the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. Let us yearn for the day of Christ's return. Let us view the trials of this world through the lens of Scripture, through the eternal lens, let us look to that which is eternal. Consider the words of truth from 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let us look to the things that are unseen. Third, let us beware of false teachers who seek to undermine the work of Christ. Test everything against the standard of Scripture. Look out, watch, beware of any teachers that add to the gospel, for they creep in. They sneak into our libraries, they sneak into our news feeds, and they sneak into our conversations. Look out, beware. Pray for your teachers and your elders as they seek to protect the flock from wolves. Fourth, 
be encouraged and emboldened to speak and share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with others. Without Christ, there is no hope. There is no lasting joy. Faith alone in Christ alone is our only hope and our joy. Above all, let us put no confidence in our own flesh. Let us worship by the Spirit of God. And let us glory in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you today for Jesus Christ and the glorious gospel in which we stand. Grant that we, we may uphold the purity of the gospel in our thoughts and in our teaching. May we add nothing to it. Help us to depend entirely on the work of Christ and put no confidence in our flesh. Grant that may, we may read and study your word with an appreciation of the centrality of the work of Christ on our behalf. Above all, may your name be lifted high in our midst and in our lives. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.